Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Hip, 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 powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price Tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of October 7th, 2019. On this week's episode, we kick off our 2019 Position Reviews, first grading the Chicago White Sox infielders. Greg Nix will join me as we decide what's a fair contract extension for Jose Abreu, if Tim Anderson has hit his ceiling as a player, and what's a realistic expectation for James McCann in 2020. Of course, we'll talk about Yoan Makata and Yomer Sanchez too, and we'll share what you, our fans and listeners, gave for grades. Also, our Patreon supporters had very good P.O. Sox questions about the White Sox infield, so we'll answer those later in the show. But first, the Chicago White Sox made their first offseason move as Rick Hahn has decided to go in another direction with hitting coach as he let Todd Steverson and his assistant hitting coach Greg Sparks go. Joining me to discuss is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I'm not shocked that Han has moved on from Steverson, but I wonder if Steverson still had years remaining on his contract that he would still be around. It seemed like he had at least one just because of the way the White Sox phrased it, the difference between Steverson and Sparks. With Sparks, they said that his contract had come to an end and they simply decided not to renew it. And so he was free of their obligation. Um, when it comes to Steverson, they said they agreed to part ways, which sounds okay. like a firing to me. Got it. Okay. Then I'll be on the same page. Uh, I felt that his contract had expired 
but the way that you put it, I think it sounds like you are right. Uh, are you surprised that Rick Hahn is not bringing back Todd Steverson? No, I'm, I'm not surprised. I am surprised that they limited it to hitting coach or, or I shouldn't say I'm, <laughs> I shouldn't say I'm surprised at the White Sox limiting it because they tend to be very conservative when it comes to how they handle coaches and basically personnel who aren't players. But when it comes to uh, the coaching staff, I thought they could have gone further, but if they're only to make one choice, I think Steverson would be the guy to go. And if Steverson goes, I didn't see Sparks being a presence that would come up and take his place since he's been there all along. It was going to be a wholesale change. So the both of them going um, seemed like the one, if they're going to make one change, that would be the one to make. So what do the White Sox go from here? Like wh- where did, would they go as far as with hitting coach? Do you think this is something that they would bring someone in internally? Do you, is there anyone out with other teams that would interest you, Jim, to replace Todd Steverson? Uh, with hitting coaches, I tend to, you know, I've been doing this for a while and, you know, I remember being, uh, getting frustrated with the offense at the end of Greg Walker's term and then Jeff Manto came in and there was no improvement and he said even worse things. And then Todd Steverson came in and I felt that process was really sound, the way, the way they hired him, the things he said, things they said about him. Uh, and as we saw, there were just limited successes and they're all in the vein of uh, aggression, you know, not keeping the line moving, but getting the most out of batting average and balls in play, which works for some guys. But as we've seen with the offense in total, it doesn't really work for a sustainable, you know, consistent offensive attack where you feel good about your chances of scoring runs day in and day out. So uh, it's been the same all along. And so when it comes to hitting coaches, I, you know, I don't really feel confident about any of my assessments with hitting coaches, especially since the front office has changed or, or stayed the same the entire time. Uh, that's been the constant is the, the guys acquiring the players. And so I'm inclined to think at this point that, you know, if you have three hitting coaches and the results have been largely the same, they can't draw walks. They, um, they strike out a lot. They don't really, uh, have a whole lot of power for how much they strike out. Uh, that seems to be more a problem with the front office and the guys they acquire than, anything else. So I I don't feel wholly confident about saying like, you know, a hitting coach is going to solve it, but you know, Frank Menachino, the Charlotte Knights hitting coach this year has been a popular guy, you know, partially because it's natural to look at who's at AAA first when, when assessing hitting coaches, especially since the White Sox generally hire internally, Mm -hmm. but he got rave reviews, uh, you know, among hitters at Charlotte. Um, you know, the, (laughs) the numbers speak for themselves, but they also, uh, have a lot to say just because of the Major League Baseball and Charlotte's tiny environment just created some really uh, wackadoo uh, home splits for the for the night. So you can't really say that was Manichino is doing, but you know, people said nice things about him. I liked what I heard from him when he talked, and it was interesting. Uh, James Fegan mentioned that Manichino was in the clubhouse uh, throughout September. You know, they called him up to, I, I guess, be an extra set of eyes and uh, ears and whatever for the the extra hitters on the roster, and I thought that was kind of interesting and might telegraph something. Hmm, that is interesting. I'm wondering, is there a reason why we're hearing this about this now? Uh, I mean, maybe somebody said something earlier and I missed it, but also there are just, I think, a lot of bodies in September. Yeah, that's so true. So this might be something <laughs> to where, you know, if he's not on the field, if he's not in the in the clubhouse and just more or less lying low or, or being more of an off-the-field presence, then maybe it's something... You know, the, the writers don't really detect, especially as long as Steverson's still there. I remember when I was, the, the one time I had clubhouse access in my life uh, during the regular season was the day they fired Jeff Manto. And I remember that uh, it was odd that Manto wasn't out there 
on the field, um, you know, I guess helping the hitters, you know, like running them through practice just wasn't there. And, and, and some, and some of the beat writers kind of saw it and we just filed it away. And then afterwards find out that he was fired you know, during the broadcast. I think uh, Hawk Harrelson actually broke the news officially during the broadcast about uh, Manto leaving. And uh, yeah, that was really weird. So I think the White Sox just, you know, maybe they decided to not have that kind of scene this time around and just, uh, you know, see the whole season through. And so Steverson was in the driver's seat and Menachino was maybe just, uh, you know, staying back and uh, being more of just somebody to talk when nobody was looking. So you mentioned that you were a bit surprised that when it comes to changing personnel on the coaching staff, that it was just limited to the hitting coaches. Do you feel like this is an opportunity for Rick Hahn to also bring in new faces, maybe even new voices? And what type of coaches would that be for the White Sox? Well, he said, uh, or at least the, the beat writer said, based on their correspondence with the White Sox when this news was released, that they expected no other coaching changes. And, you know, perhaps unless somebody is hired for a managerial job, which doesn't seem likely, uh, that would seem to be the case where everybody's coming back. So I'm not expecting any further ones. I thought that when it came to the coaching staff and just looking at the, I guess, looking at the play of the White Sox as a reflection of some of their duties. I mean, you know, Tim Anderson's defense uh, taking a step back. Um, when you hear so much about how he works with Joe McEwing, maybe McEwing's not getting through to him. Or the outfield defense being pretty much terrible across the board and Daryl Boston being there. Just, uh, you know, I, I thought that maybe one of those guys could be swapped out for somebody else who's maybe just... Uh, different and has other things to say, but maybe, it, you know, again, as we talked about with the hitters, that maybe it's just a reflection of the talent the White Sox are bringing up. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to make Daniel Palka a, yeah, an average outfielder or make Eloy Jimenez uh, an average outfielder. I think, you know, Jimenez played better and left his last couple of months. Palka was still a disaster, but, you know, either way, just it's a low, they're starting with a very low level of talent out there defensively and just, you know, there, there's really no improvement to be found. So maybe it's just the talent, but uh, just I thought the defensive issues that basically persisted the entire season, it seemed like maybe one of those coaches could have been swapped out to uh, address that maybe. Well, for the Chicago White Sox moving forward, finding a new hitting coach, a new voice to help with the White Sox bats. As Jim mentioned before, it was a very extensive process the last time they went through this, uh, which was during the 2013 offseason, as Todd Steverson's first season with the White Sox was back in 2014. And this comes from the MLB.com piece that captured as far as the White Sox process. And the last time they went through this process, assistant general manager Jeremy Haber put together a dossier of 16 to 17 candidates in which the front office narrowed it down to six candidates that they interviewed. Rick Hahn and assistant general manager Buddy Bell, old friend, uh, sat down for the interviews with White Sox chairman Jerry Reinstorf and executive vice president Ken Williams, and at the time manager Robin Ventura for the final for the finalists. And they decided the day that they interviewed Todd Steverson that he was the man for the job, as they liked his method of a selective aggressiveness. So we'll see what method that Rick Hahn prefers. But we got this question from one of our Patreon supporters, and this is from Waldo Wolf, and I think it was a very good question, Jim. And they're asking, let's say you guys are conducting the interviews for the new hitting coach. What questions will you be asking the candidates? Well, you know, I, I kind of claimed ignorance before on my uh, questions, or at least my uh, how I assess the field. But I think 
Generally speaking, there's only so much a hitting coach can say. I mean, Steverson said the right thing. Selective aggression is basically boiled down to swing at strikes or, or, or attack pitches you can drive. You know, that's basically what it comes down to. And when you, when you boil it down to that, that's fine. That's great. You know, that's, that's what you want to hear, you know, and, and, uh, I think that worked for some guys like Tim Anderson, naturally aggressive, um, getting him to channel it a bit better. Makes sense. Same thing with Avi Garcia. Yohan Makata had to you know, stop looking at strike three and he did that. So I think, uh, you know, maybe he, this was the first phase of his development, cutting down his walks just to show hitters that, uh, show pitchers he could punish strikes. But when it comes to, you know, what they can say or what they, uh, you know, what they supposedly advertise bringing in position, uh, you know, there's a long distance to cover in between saying and doing or, or helping uh, based on the way the White Sox have gone. I think at this point, uh, one, you want to make sure that they have the correct priorities. And, you know, and, and Jeff Manto was a guy who didn't. He really didn't uh, think walks were that important and, uh, you know, talked his way around it and said some scary things. And so I would like to avoid that. Um, so, but you make sure that they have the right priorities in terms of what provides value. Um, you know, the, the whole, uh, you know, fly balls better than ground balls for most hitters. And, and, you know, just the idea of walks and, 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 and on base percentage, what provides value in terms of batted balls and, uh, walks and, and just kind of the big picture of how offenses in 2019 are assembled. So yeah, assuming they pass that, and I imagine most guys will, I think at this point, it's more of a comprehensive approach, and I think more of the work has to be done on the pipeline side. Hmm. Uh, if you're counting, in, and I think on, on Steverson's side, and, and maybe in his defense, you know, they tried to establish a top-down thing with him, but maybe that was the wrong way to do it at that very moment in the game where you have all these you know, um, swing gurus and uh, independent coaching you know, uh programs and all this technology and some people are better at harnessing it than others and you know a lot of guys doing work by themselves in the offseason and prospects um getting coached a different way in college and um in the minors and and so forth and it, it seems like you know having you know trying to go from you know with todd steverson's having a top-down approach i don't know if that's something that is really done anymore or or can be done unless you have somebody who's really uh, you go all in on it and you have somebody who is a hitting camp instructor or hitting like a, a, what do you want to call it? A, basically like a hitting garage who uh, establishes that mindset and is able to, uh, to professional hitters at the very top of the game, all the way down to a ball. And you get everybody in line behind him, you know, maybe that's one way to do it. But if you're looking for a traditional hitting coach who has experience in the game and is taught as a major leaguer talking to major leaguers, then, you know, maybe that guy could only do so much and more of the work is done in the, uh, at the level of, you know, as we saw with A-Ball, with Ryan Johansson and Matt Lyle, who only lasted a year, but maybe continuing along in that vein to find more hitting analysts who are serving as coaches in the minors to bring those guys up to where when they do get to the majors, uh, the, the, the hitting coach there is conversant in that kind of stuff, but isn't doing the whole swing refining, um, you know, trying to coach guys into being a different, better hitter. Uh, it's probably more about maintenance and keys and preparing them with the, uh, you know, attack plan for the day against you know, that set of pitchers. So that would be, I guess, the way I would approach it is the major league hitting coach maybe at this point can only do so much. And it's more about not screwing the guys uh, who are who are doing well and, and uh being on the same page overall in terms of what guys need and uh, where they've gotten it from. 
Yeah, because you need to have your 12 to 13 guys prepared for the pitchers that they could see that day. And I'm sure that's a lot of work for any hitting coach to put in every single day and to make sure that they have the video of all the pitchers they could possibly face in a given game. I'm sure it's just tough and difficult to have your hitters prepare depending on who's going to be available out of the bullpen. So they're not surprised and they, they can get some film on these guys and see what they look like, or at least how the ball comes out of the hand before they get into the batter's box. So I think you raise a lot of good points, Jim. I think to answer the question, when it comes to the hitting coach, at least for the white Sox, is the question I would ask is what do you prefer individual approaches or team approaches for the white Sox? The 25, it'll be 26 guys next year when the White Sox hire a hitting coach. Because one thing that I noticed throughout at least the wild card games in the postseason is that like Oakland and Tampa Bay watching that particular game is that both teams seem to have a team approach on how they were going to attack as far as the pitchers, on what they were waiting for. And like for Tampa Bay, they were waiting for any fastball to hit the outside corner. And as a team, as a collective unit, it appeared all the hitters were looking for anything that came on the outside corner. Yandy, Yandy Diaz hitting his two home runs there. Avasil Garcia hitting his huge home run there. Tommy Pham hitting his home run on a fastball in the outside corner. And I feel like when I'm watching the White Sox, Jim, and maybe you disagree with this thought, but it seems like with the White Sox under Todd Steverson is that there were individual approaches depending on the hitter. And I think that would be a good question to ask any future hitting coach of the White Sox. Of what do you prefer? Do you want the guys to have individual approaches and then you try to help with their individual approach? Or do you prefer that everyone in the lineup has the same approach heading into that game? Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. I think with the White Sox having such a uniquely aggressive approach, like having Larry Garcia as your leadoff man and having him ambush so many strike ones and having games where he'll make four trips to the plate and see a total of five pitches. That's really unique. You know, <laughs> I think when you have him mm-hmm. and you have, uh, and you have uh, Tim Anderson and you have, uh, well, Yomer Sanchez actually started drawing walks at the end of the year. So that was weird, but <laughs> yeah, uh, Jose Abreu has a very um, big strike zone when he wants to hit something. Uh, it is. It seems like it's kind of based on how the White Sox, I guess the type of hitters the White Sox have acquired. And I know there was some, you mentioned preparation and just how uh, I remember reading about, you know, Larry Garcia being somewhat of a out, an outlier when it comes to the White Sox hitters, just being somebody who's more of a video guy doing it on his own and how Jose Abreu had to buy Eloy Jimenez an iPad to uh, better visually prepare for what he was going to be seeing because natural hitting stopped uh, working for him in the first few months of the season. Uh, that maybe something like that is, you know, might be important for the White Sox, just getting everybody on the same page when it comes to what they're seeing and how much they're seeing. And, you know, within reason, I, I think some guys maybe just, you know, when it comes to hitters, just more information, or there can be such thing as too much information and overthinking and outthinking themselves. But, at, at some point, uh, you know, at some points over the season when it came to, you know, reading about what White Sox hitters are doing and how it, ones were different from the others, there were a couple moments along those lines where you think like, 
why isn't the team supplying Eloy Jimenez with an iPad? Why is, you know, right. Yeah. And, and Steverson used the word YouTube for Larry Garcia. And I hope that they have their own video portal. And maybe, you know, that's the term for their own video portal. Maybe that's Steverson's you know, term for online videos in general. No, I, I remember this story. Larry Garcia was looking at YouTube. Okay, it was YouTube. Okay, so I didn't know if that was a catch-all or if that was just YouTube. But yeah, just you know, having more of a, uh, I would think, trying to avoid those kind of anecdotes. Um, and I think that's partially a, a White Sox overall problem, not just the hitting coach. But right. as they try to develop this offense as something greater than... Uh, a collective of aggressive hitters who sometimes, you know, only see a hundred pitches a game amongst themselves. Uh, that seems like something that can be improved by the next regime. Um, and hopefully, uh, some additional hitters from the outside who maybe bring in their own experiences with uh, more successful, either individual approaches or from more successful organizations. I'm expecting the decision to be Frank Medichino to be the new White Sox hitting coach starting the 2020 season. But this is an opportunity for Rick Hahn. If he wants to bring in a new voice from the outside, just like they did with Todd Steverson because they grabbed him from the Oakland A's, or if he wants to start implementing any new wave of thinking of approaching the game, this is his opportunity. Because after they hire the hitting coach, like this is up to Rick Hahn then to also fix the offense. You did one part. You're going to bring in a new voice to help the players that you currently have. But he, he knows that he's got to find better players to help out with the offense. So step one, new hitting coach. Step two, get better talent. And the hitting coach will try their very hardest to make sure the guys that hit well in 2019 continue to hit well in 2020. And maybe someone else could surprise. Maybe a new hitting coach helps unlock Zach Collins' potential and help Luis Robert and Nick Magical make the transition from AAA to the major leagues. But yeah, Rick Hahn has some work to do in this offseason to really help out talent-wise offensively for the White Sox because there is some really good and there's been some really bad offensive performances, which we'll touch on later in the show when we review the Chicago White Sox infielders for the 2019 season. But before we do that, uh, another uh, kind of a surprise out of the blue uh, is that Michael Kopech is throwing in instructs. So he's actually pitching in games. And it looks like Jim from like Eric Loggenhagen of Fangraphs, who's a friend of the show. Uh, what others are tweeting when they're watching is that it appears the stuff's really good, that the velocity is at 99 miles per hour for his fastball. Yeah, I saw that too. And that was a welcome sight. You know, when you look at Zach Birdie and how long it took him to even get to what you might call the high 90s, which is like 96, 97, you know, touching that when he used to sit 98 to 100, um, you know, and how long that took for him to get back and seeing Kelvin Herrera spend most of the season trying to get back to his old fastball and falling short. Uh, it's nice to see somebody come back and the first time you see him and the first time you uh, see video and, and get radar gun readings, it's back to where he was and uh, you know, the, the key from here is whether he can repeat it and be available uh, to continue pitching on a regular basis from here through the spring. But yeah, it's a great initial report. And he's breaking off the rust. I mean, the things that you read on Twitter that the command is rusty or the command is not sharp. I mean, this is his first time pitching in any type of games in more than a calendar year, right? Yeah, because last time he pitched was in September of 2018 and now it's October. So yeah, he hasn't pitched in a game in 13 months. So yeah, there's going to be some rust 
Um, but it is a good sign to see. And hopefully we get more video from the backfields down in Arizona of Michael Kopech pitching in games. And it helps build up a little bit more excitement heading to the offseason because it would be a welcome sight to have Michael Kopech part of the White Sox starting rotation in 2020. Jim and I will reconvene to answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox later in the show. But coming up next, let's start grading the White Sox infielders as Greg Nix joins me on the Sox Machine Podcast. Do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event difficult on purpose? It's as if they're so big they can get away with not caring about the customer experience. So what if there are sites annoying and doesn't have the events you want? The real question is, how easy could it be if those ticketing sites actually cared? Well, with millions of live event tickets at a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand up from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it and I use SeatGeek all the time during the White Sox season and I always go to SeatGeek as well whenever there are other events like Bears games or Chicago Bulls games or Blackhawks games as those regular seasons are about to start and I always go to SeatGeek first because there's always a price match guarantee every stadium is seeming to go to digital tickets it's easy to download the tickets onto your smartphone plus SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web so they rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10 and when they put them on an interactive seat map have a better understanding what the view looks like from those seats and making my final decision the best part is that SeatGeek will get you $10 off your first purchase all you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app today and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off on your first purchase again that's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek the Chicago White Sox infield was the team's strongest unit in 2019 Tim Anderson was the batting champion. Jose Abreu led the American League in RBIs. Yoan Mikata was a 5.7 war player, according to Fangraphs. And James McCann had the best year of his career. While these are all positive things, there is a bit of uncertainty heading into 2020. I mean, Jose Abreu still doesn't have a deal. Pretty sure we will see someone new at second base. And even if James McCann falls short of his performance in 2019, who is backing him up next year? Or who is McCann backing up in 2020? Well, to help me recap the White Sox infielders and peek ahead to the 2020 squad, it's a familiar voice for those listening to the Sox Machine White Sox wake-up call. It's Greg Nix. And hello, Greg. Thanks for joining the show and helping me recap the White Sox infielders. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure, Josh. So the process is to begin with the starters making our way around the infield. Share what the fans gave the players as the grade, and we'll share what grades we gave the players. We had 569 surveys turned in, which is a very nice number. Uh, So thank you to everyone uh, for your participation in providing as far as grades, not just for the infielders, but on future podcast episodes, we'll be reviewing the outfielders, the pitchers, and of course, White Sox management just in time when the Sox machine offseason plans start to be available and people start making their predictions on what the White Sox could do in the offseason to prepare for the 2020 season. 
But let's go ahead and let's knock out the infielders. And there's no better way as far as reviewing infielders than starting at first base. And that's Jose Abreu. And Greg, what grade did you give Jose Abreu for his 2019 season? I'm giving Abreu a B. A B. And our fans and listeners, 52.9% gave Jose Abreu also a B. 41.7% gave him an A. So if you kind of averaged it out, I would say the fans listeners gave Jose Abreu a B plus, And he hit 33 homers. He drove in 123 RBIs. He eventually got to his, what we've been expecting, his slash line, even though at times he really struggled to get on base with the walks. He had 284 with a 330 on base percentage, slugged 503, and his weighted runs created plus was 117, but overall his war was 1.9. What prevented you from giving Abreu an A, Greg? I think uh, the lack of skills supporting Jose's hitting, which, you know, is, is no surprise to any of us by now. We sort of know that he's a good hitter, um, probably not an elite hitter with the exception of his rookie year. Uh, and he doesn't really bring anything else to the table aside from sort of intangible leadership, right? He's he's a bad defender, even for first base. He's one of the worst base runners in the league. And so that's just going to hold his value down. And unless he, you know, is having a 40-plus a home run season and hitting above 300, I just don't think he's ever going to be uh, an elite caliber starting first baseman which is fine I mean we've you know you can win without one but I I don't think that uh the the bar is just so high at first base and I don't really think statistically on the field Abreu really clears that I can agree with a lot of that because in order for first baseman right to be four or five war type of players they need, they need to have a weighted runs create a plus of like 140, 150, right? They have to be 40, 50% better than league average. And then even though Jose Breu had the county numbers, uh, which were sexy, over 30 homers, over 120 RBIs, and he had a good slash line, he was only 17% better than league average. And for first baseman, what we've been accustomed to and how when you use advanced metrics like war, they get beat up on defense. You don't really get a lot of positive gain at first base. So in order for a first baseman like Freddie Freeman to have four or five war type of seasons, you got to you gotta smash at the plate. And Jose Breu does that in spurts, but over the course of a season, I, I agree with you, Greg. He is good. He is not elite. But it brings up the question, he does not have a contract going into next season. And I'm pretty sure Jose Abreu is coming back to the White Sox, Greg. So what do you think would be a fair contract extension for the White Sox and Jose Abreu? I actually would be, in in my ideal world, uh, I'd be looking at a one-year deal. But I think that probably the organization has enough loyalty to him and he's he's such a pillar that they'll probably looking at multiple years so I would hope though that it doesn't go much above the uh, like two years in the 20 to 30 million dollar range I feel like that is fair to Abreu as far as like a nod to what he's been for the franchise but it also keeps the payroll flexibility open and sort of gives them um 
they're not committed too long, so they can sort of reevaluate where Abreu is and where Andrew Vaughn is and where Zach Collins is and all these cornerbacks are uh, in a year or two. Yeah, for our upcoming offseason plan, the number that I've been playing with is two years, $30 million, so $15 million per season. And you can dangle the carrot for a club option for a third season, knowing that it is very likely the White Sox would not pick up that club option. But again, it can be the carrot on the stick to entice Jose Abreu to sign that. I mean, if he's thinking he's getting three plus years with the White Sox, I love Jose Abreu, Greg, but I feel like that would be a mistake to sign Jose Abreu to more than three years. Agreed. And, and you look at sort of the contracts that other corner guys have gotten and even two years and $30 million is generous for the overall value that Abreu brings to the table. I mean, if you're actually looking at sort of it from you know, you take his name, you blank out his name and look at him as a player. And uh, I don't know that you, like he's he's that much better than Daniel Murphy was when Murphy got a co- contract in Colorado. Right. And obviously we love a brain. We don't love Daniel Murphy. But so that may sound like uh, like blasphemy. But I think common the the common conception around the market was even that Murphy was overpaid. So I think, you know, hopefully Abreu does not push for anything that makes the White Sox uncomfortable, and hopefully if he does, the White Sox don't give it to him. I suspected something would have been done already. Is Jose Abreu going to be the first order of business for the White Sox when it comes to players in the offseason, Greg? Or could you see this, I guess, lingering throughout the entire offseason with a with not having a resolution until January or even maybe February. I'd be surprised if it lingered that long. That's that's generally not the way the White Sox do business uh with sort of in-house favorites. Um I'd I'd be very surprised if it lasted that long and would be curious to see if that were the case kind of what the other moves are that are holding that up or if Abreu is holding out for a little bit more money, but I, I just don't see where he would get it elsewhere, so I think I would think that you know, by the winter meetings, there's an Abreu deal in place. Again, I would suspect a deal would be in place already. <laughs> and who knows? Uh, maybe something will happen in the next couple of weeks. But that's Jose Abreu. And everyone around is giving Jose Abreu a B for his 2019 performance. Moving over to second base, Yomer Sanchez. What grade did you give Yomer for his 2019 season? I think if we're sticking with whole grades, I'll give Yomer a C. Okay, so if it wasn't a whole grade and you gave him a minus or plus, what would that grade be? I think it would be a C minus. Why would you give Yomer a C minus? I think the offense was just so disappointing this year. Uh, he's sort of taken steps backwards over the last two years offensively, and I would have hoped that last year was sort of the uh, least we could expect from him and then he he kind of got worse relative to the league so even though defensively at second base he was uh pretty amazing by both the metrics and the eye test I think the offense is just unplayable for a regular everyday player and I think that um you know that I would have expected just as a baseline him to be a little bit better so he comes in a little bit below my expectations Yeah, he could win the gold glove. I mean, that is a realistic possibility that Yomer Sanchez in November will win the gold glove at second base in the American League. And in a few weeks later, 
get non-tendered by the Chicago White Sox uh, and be a free agent. And we'll we'll talk about as far as Yomer's status in 2020, but again, his numbers for 2019, Yomer Sanchez hit 252 with a 318 on base percentage. He only slugged 321, like no extra base hits for Yomer Sanchez in 2019. His weighted runs created plus was 74. And if you want to dive even deeper, when we look at offensive runs, a player has been worth. Yomer Sanchez was worth negative 16.3 offensive runs on fan graphs for the White Sox. And you want to compare it to other players. Tim Anderson was worth 21.4 offensive runs, and Yohan Mikado was worth 32.6 offensive runs uh, for the White Sox. So between Yohan Mikado and Yomer Sanchez is a 48-run difference in offense uh, between those two players. That's how that's how bad Yomer Sanchez was with the bat uh, in 2019. But again, he could win the Gold Glove this season. And it stems the question, Greg, is Yomer Sanchez coming back in 2020? Uh, I, it's hard to, it's just so hard to tell with the White Sox being the White Sox and Yomer being a club favorite and a fan favorite, but I, I lean no, and that's what I would do if I was in charge. He's just not worth the arbitration paycheck, certainly. And if they're going to be improving other spots, which hopefully they will, uh, he becomes redundant with Leory Garcia, who offers a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more fight with the bat. So I would say uh, sad to see him go, but Yolmer probably shouldn't be on the White Sox next season. For a team that will have the lowest committed payroll going into the offseason, it's a bit weird to make this comment. But I think Nick Madrigal can replace Yomer Sanchez's production at like one-tenth of the cost, right? Madrigal would be on a rookie contract. That would be around $573,000 in 2020. And Yomer Sanchez is entering arbitration year three. So he could, you know, demand five-plus million dollars in arbitration. And if he wins a gold glove, uh, that will increase... Uh, his rate in arbitration court. And do you really want to pay Yomer Sanchez $6 million, the type of production that he provided in 2019 at second base? I'd rather just put Nick Magical in on opening day, take that $5.4 million and go spend it elsewhere. Even though, again, the White Sox have the lowest committed payroll. They have plenty of payroll for Yomer Sanchez and they have spent $6 million in worse ways uh, in recent years. But adding those attributes up, I don't see Yomer Sanchez coming back. And for our fans and listeners, they gave Yomer Sanchez a C with 25.5% giving Yomer Sanchez a D. So I think the fans and listeners would agree with you, Greg, at a C-. So we go from second base. Let's move over to shortstop for Tim Anderson. Our fans and listeners gave the Major League Baseball batting champion an A. 63.8% of our fans and listeners gave Tim Anderson an A. 34.6% gave him a B. And only nine people out of 569 gave Tim Anderson a C, which I find a bit odd on how you can give Tim Anderson a C, but that's just how people feel. How about you, Greg? What grade did you give Tim Anderson for 2019? Uh, I'm going D. I'm going to uh, Price is Right, what? all these people. No, <laughs> I'm going A. I think, uh, you know, it, it's 
He has a game that's a little bit easy to quibble with. At least he did this season in terms of like, obviously he doesn't walk. The uh, errors popped back up and defensively he was not quite as reliable as we'd like or, or didn't reach the level of his 2018 season. Um, and of course he was injured. But all that being said, what he did bring to the table on offense so far outstripped anything that he had done in the past or anything that we expected him to do that I think uh, it's hard for me to not give the season an, an A just in terms of uh, the overall production that he brought to the table as well as the attitude and and him being sort of my favorite player on the Sox, I think, right now. Um you know, that sort of being a team leader, being an exciting player and uh, producing finally in a way that makes him a, a well above average player. Yeah, Tim Anderson, again, he had 335. He had a 357 on base percentage as he only walked 2.9% of the time. He slugged 508. Tim Anderson outslugged Jose Abreu. Think about that for a moment. Uh, and Anderson had a 130 weighted runs created plus, which for a shortstop is outstanding. His war on fan graphs was 3.5, which is also terrific. A new career high for Tim Anderson. And I think the key stat is 39. That's the amount of games that Tim Anderson missed in 2019, which is more than a month's worth of games because of injuries and I really wonder what his numbers would have looked like, Greg, if he didn't miss a significant part of the 2019 season. Maybe even goes even higher than what I just read off. Maybe Tim Anderson is a four-war player, which is kind of where you need your shortstop to be in the American League if you want to be a serious contender to make the postseason next season. That sparks the question, though, Greg. After 2019, has Tim Anderson hit his ceiling as a player or is there another level you think he can reach it's an interesting question because i think in terms of the overall value that he's bringing to the table i think it's hard to see him putting everything together for more than a four win player just because of the obvious holes in his game but i think uh that I could see him having that same value in future seasons, but in different ways, you know, with if his average takes a step back, the batting average in balls and play takes a step back, but he's more of a 30 home run hitter than a 20 home run hitter. Or if he manages to reverse the uh, step back that he took on defense this season, I could easily see him being a four win player, but in a much different way, it'd be hard for, it, it just seems unlikely that, every single element of his game comes together and he becomes a five or six win guy because he's hitting 330 wall, hitting 30 home runs wall, playing flawless defense. But um, so I guess the the short answer is yes, I think he's probably hit a ceiling, but he may that ceiling may be a different shape in different seasons, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense where I, I don't know. He's going to improve defensively, I think, in 2020, but hes I don't think he's ever going to be an elite defender. Tim Anderson makes some great web gems. He's got terrific range, and he's got a great arm. And again, he just makes plays that your jaw just drops. And it's like, how in the world did you make that play, Tim Anderson? And then he boots the routine plays where you just kind of roll your eyes and you sigh, and you got to take the good with the bad. 
when it comes to defense. But I do think that he is a top five offensive shortstop in all of Major League Baseball. But I still think he's going to be a bottom five defensive shortstop going to 2020, Greg. And because of that, I think his ceiling is for war. So if he stays healthy, I think he will hit his ceiling. So maybe there's a little bit more room for improvement for Tim Anderson in my book in 2020 if he could play 150-plus games. Uh, but I'm with you. The, the, the way that a four-war season looks like for Tim Anderson at shortstop compared to, I don't know, let's say Dansby Swanson for the Atlanta Braves looks a lot different on how they get to that value of war. And uh, we'll see if Tim Anderson can prove us wrong, but if he can now be consistent three and a half plus war player for the White Sox at shortstop, that's exactly the type of production they need in the middle of the infield. And they've always had a problem at the hot corner at third base until this season with Yoan Mikata making the transition from second to third base, making the White Sox look like geniuses with this transition. And again, 569 White Sox fans took the 2019 player survey and 545 of them, 95.8%, gave Yoan Mikata an A for his 2019 season. Greg, how about you? What grade did you give Mikata for 2019? is an easy A for me. Yeah, I'm surprised that 24 people gave Mikata a B. I would like to know what more they would want to see from Yoan Mikata. And, you know, there's been a lot of conversation. We'll talk more about this in P.O. Sox as we got quite a few questions as Mikata, again, made this transition from second to third base. There's a very big free agent that's going to be available in Anthony Rendon of the Washington Nationals this offseason, and he plays third base. And some people are saying that the White Sox should go get Anthony Rendon and move Yoan Mikata back to second base. And there are White Sox fans that are deathly afraid of that because they remember Gordon Beckham and they think that Mjolnir Mikata could be Beckhamed. There are a lot of good third basemen, though, in Major League Baseball. And despite Mikata being a 5.7 war player, he's the fourth best third baseman in the American League. And that's because Alex Bregman, Matt Chapman, and the guy that replaced him in Boston, Rafael Devers, all had better seasons than Yohan Mikata. I know that's hard to believe, but again, third base is a very deep position in all of Major League Baseball. So as we move forward in 2020, kind of similar question to Tim Anderson, Greg. Is this Yohan Mikata's ceiling, or is there another level you think he can reach where he can produce better than in Alex Bregman, Matt Chapman, or Rafael Devers. I think it's hard to say that he's going to be consistently better than any of those guys because they are very, very good at baseball. Um, but I think that he can be at their level, right? And uh, the next step for him is consistency, doing it more than once. Obviously, Bregman and Chapman have been doing it f for the last couple of years. Um, Devers has been a little bit less consistent, but is, is much younger, is even younger than Moncada, I believe. Um, so I think then the next step for him, right, is, is consistency, proving he can do it all at once. And like Anderson, staying healthy. Um, I think it's a little bit concerning that Moncada's injuries tend to be sort of the soft tissue things, the hamstring pulls and quad pulls and that kind of thing. Um, so that, that's really the only question left with him, as well as I think, uh, 
you know, maintaining the gains that he made this year that were a little bit unexpected in terms of the way that he hit lefties and the way that he uh, had, you know, had such a high batting average. He finished third in the American League in batting average, which is, I think, getting lost in the shuffle of Anderson's batting title a little bit. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little step back next year from Moncada, but I think my... That's that's a very long answer to your question, but I think he has room to do more, and it wouldn't surprise me if he put up an MVP caliber season or two. Um, but I don't know, I don't know if he'll be sort of the Alex Bregman-ish, like best player, top five player in the league every year for years running. If that makes sense, right? Because then you're looking at a seven or eight WAR type of player from Yohan Makata, which is just even more absurd numbers and another level that quite frankly, as White Sox fans, we have not seen since what Frank Thomas in his prime 20 plus years uh, since we've seen someone produce a six, seven, even eight war type of season. Uh, so it'd be, I, I'd be excited. Well, Chris sale, maybe. Well, Chris uh, sale on the pitching side. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Pitching and, war and first position player war. Yeah, Carlos Quinton is the only one I can think of as far as uh, who is truly in the MVP discussion, and obviously that went downhill downhill quickly. I think Bancada is in a much different situation as a younger guy who uh, has a mo- more well-rounded skill set. Um, but yeah, I, I could see him in the MVP conversation once or twice, but I don't know that he's... Uh, it's just almost nobody is, you know, in that that tier. It's like two or three guys, the Mike Trout and uh, Christian Yelich's of the world. Um, it's just no, almost nobody gets there, so the odds are against him a little bit in that sense. If you move Mankata back to second base, he's the best second baseman in all the American League, easily. He would get the Silver Slugger Award. Uh, he would be a consistent all-star. But again, moving forward, it's great that Mikata's at this level. Just don't be surprised if he finishes fourth in the American League All-Star voting. And he has a tough time making the All-Star game. And he's having a tough time winning the Silver Slugger, even though he's crushing the ball. Just because it's a deep position in the American League. Whereas at second base, it would be Mikata against Glaber Torres. If he continues to play second base for the New York Yankees. So I guess it's uh, where do you want to be? Do you want to be a normal fish in a deep pond at third base, or do you want to be the big fish in the small pond at second base in the American League? But you know, again, that's that's looking at it. If I'm if I'm in Kata, I I'd move over to second base because I you know loving the accolades and that's what people remember when they look back at your baseball reference page. Uh, but he's been great at third base, and the White Sox haven't seen this type of production in a very long time as Mikata posted the best offensive season ever for White Sox third baseman in their 119 seasons as a franchise. Just tremendous. So we go from the hot corner to behind the plate to James McCann. And I think for a lot of White Sox fans, they were very excited to see on how well James McCann played. Again, this was a career year for James McCann. Our fans listeners gave him a B, 61.7% of the responses gave him a B with 30.4% giving him an A. So if you averaged it out, you're looking at a B plus for James McCann in 2019. Greg, what grade did you give McCann for his season? 
I, I'm split on this one because relative to expectations, or the expectations I had at least, it's uh, another A because my expectations were very, very low. Uh, I think just in terms of pure production, though, it's a B, and, and so I'm going to go with B as well. Okay, and I think B is a good grade for James McCann. Uh, he was 2.3 war. In 2019, he had 18 home runs, which is just as many as Tim Anderson had. Uh, I believe that is, yeah, that is a career high for James McCann in a season as he had 273, 328, 460 is his slash line with a 108, with a 109 weighted runs created plus for the season. And when it comes to James McCann and we look forward to 2020, the first part is what is realistic expectations moving forward for James McCann? I think realistic expectations, you have to expect a step back just because the first half of the season was so out of line with everything else that he's done in his career, including the second half of the season. Um, But I could see the second half version of James McCann, which is not a bad player, uh, being the James McCann that we see going forward. So that's what I would hope slash expect uh, him to be considerably better than he was at the end of his Tigers career, but uh, considerably worse than he was during the first half of the season. And is James McCann the starting catcher for 2020? Uh, I expect that the White Sox will not upgrade a catcher just because that's what I want them to do and they they never do what I want them to do. I'm, I'm very intrigued by the Yasmani Grandal drum that you guys have been beating on the podcast uh, and think that he'd be a, a great pickup, but I expect that he'll be the that McCann will be the catcher who gets the most playing time in 2020, although I also hope that They'll bring in uh, somebody with a little bit more defensive chops than Wellington Castillo or Zach Collins to back him up, and and maybe it becomes sort of a three-headed beast of McCann, Collins, and good defensive player X. Is Zach Collins still a catcher in your book? Not a full-time catcher. I think a -a once-a-week catcher uh, against righties. I I would be comfortable playing him there uh, to see sort of how well he can get through a season. I mean, I think that, you know, that he wouldn't be bad enough to lose an individual game most of the time. You know what I mean? So I think uh, I would never expect him to be a full-time catcher or even more than a once-a-week catcher, but I'm comfortable with him as a -a once-a-week catcher if he's hitting and if he's spending, you know, a game a week at first base and a game a week at DH. I think that's probably his his best near-term role. Well, then looking at the players that were on the bench or got a stretch of starting time because of injuries for the White Sox in 2019, and we'll start with James McCann's backup catcher, Wellington Castillo. What grade did you give Castillo for his 2019 season? F. You gave him an F. Well, 46.9% gave Castillo a D. 38.3% gave him an F. So maybe he... Just skirts by with a D minus. I think people are people are too nice. They're afraid of hurting Wellington Castillo's feelings. <laughs> well, what grade would you give Ryan Goins for his spot starts in 2019? I would give Goins 
a B, B minus, uh, just because he exceeded expectations so wildly at the beginning of his tenure, kind of like a mini version of McCann, actually, and then sort of regressed back to what you would expect from him. Um, but he did everything the White Sox could have asked in a season where a lot of people did not do what the White Sox asked. So I think that earns him a bit of goodwill. And then for Jose Rendon, what grade would you give him for his 2019 season? Uh, this is a painful one because I liked Rondone coming into the season. I even wrote a post on Sox Machine last offseason about how Rondone was interesting, uh, but I have to give him an F minus. He was <laughs> he was pretty brutal out there. I know Jim Jim wanted him to be good. He really did, and so did I. So I mean, the the power was intriguing. He seemed like a good defender, but yeah, he he just really didn't bring anything to the table this season, and had like I. Yeah, I don't know. It, it just looked like a vacuum out there in a bad way. <laughs> and then uh, I'm sure this is very divisive as far as this grading, but <laughs> what grade would you give Yonder Alonso for his 2019 season? I think I'm trying to think what a good uh, grade for lower than F is. Like what what is something that is worse than e? failing a high school class I, yeah expelled i guess <laughs> an expulsion i would expel him from school for uh being such a troublemaker by striking out so much 500 so again 569 responses 96.1 percent gave yonder alonzo an f Someone actually gave him a C, a few people, seven people. Hey, Manny Machado's voting in the poll. <laughs> Two people gave him a B. Oh, my gosh. And John Jay and <laughs> Yonder Alonso's wife. <laughs> I think those people are trolling us. Um, but, yeah, 96.1% gave Yonder Alonso an F. But when it comes to the infield, and, again, we are moving into the offseason, what is the lesson to be learned about the Yonder Alonso saga for the White Sox? I think the easiest lesson and the most, you know, kind of common one that you're going to get is don't try to sign a free agent by signing his friends first. Um, I think the more important lesson that they need to learn from Alonso and that I'm not confident they will because they haven't learned it from most of Rick Hahn's free agent acquisitions or... I, I count Alonzo as a free agent acquisition, even though he was a trade, because they basically gave up just money to sign him. But I think uh, they need to aim higher than the lower middle tier of the market. They need to aim higher than the Adam LaRoches and the uh, Melky Cabreras and even the David Robertsons, right? The Zach Dukes. They, the, Sox, the White Sox tend to pay two-thirds of a premier salary for someone and expect two-thirds of the production but actually get like five percent of the production and they need to just stop doing that they need to shop in the in the fancy aisle you know they need to sign somebody for a lot of money with a well-rounded skill set that even if one aspect of that skill set deserts them they won't be an absolute value suck they'll be able to contribute in other ways and alonzo is the polar opposite of that so that's the lesson that i hope they learn well you can follow greg on twitter he's at greg nicks human and he also has another baseball podcast which you can listen to and subscribe to it's the duck snort podcast and greg thanks for coming on the show and in and in a few weeks, I can't wait to read about your 2019-2020 
White Sox offseason plan. It's always a blast, Josh. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, it's your questions in P.O. Sox. I know it's baseball season, but many of us are gearing up for fantasy football. Some of you might be like me and you are the commissioner of your fantasy league. Just recently, I made a new website to track our standings and all of our past champions, which if you want to check out, you can go to DraftKingsLeague.com. And I created that website on Wix. It was super easy as Wix has hundreds of templates to choose from. So if you don't have the best design chops like me, no worries. They have a lot of website examples you can use for a variety of topics like a blog or your photography, weddings, and even small business options. Wix also has a lot of tools you can use to make the website more productive. For me, it was nice they have Google Sheets integrations that I could use to create our standings and allow our other participants in the league to track their progress. They also have other built-in tools like storage and custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and even e-commerce. With built-in SEO tools you can use to get your website found easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your business, share your talents to the world, or, like me, create a website for our Fantasy Football League. Whatever you're dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox time, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, or helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And rejoining me on the Sox Machine podcast is Jim Margulis to answer your questions. But before we answer your questions, I wanted to get Jim's thoughts on his grades for the White Sox infielders, as I thought we had a great conversation with Greg running down the list. So let's start at first base, Jim. What grade would you give Jose Abreu and why? I would give him a solid B, uh, just because when you lead the league in RBIs with that lineup around him and that lineup in front of him, and the as we mentioned before, the White Sox inability to really get on base consistently and, and, and their allergy to walks, it takes a special season to do that. And I, maybe if you look at the component stats and his overall production as a first baseman and, and try to project it going forward and saying, like, um, how would you feel about this approach being uh, applied to the uh, next season with a completely new slate and new sequences and, and you can't bank on the same luck? I would say it's probably like fundamentals of a C season underneath it. But just the way it worked out and the kind of production, how he shaped it and how he saved his better at-bats, um, have to give it a B. Okay, and then moving over to second base, Yomer Sanchez, what grade would you give him? This one's tough. I, I, I think for me, like, yeah, theoretically, he's a two wins above replacement second baseman, and that's an average starter, so you want to say average, but it felt worse to me, so I'm thinking, like, C minus D plus. Oh, wow. 
Okay. Just be just because, and, and I, I think I'll get to this uh, with with some of the PO Sox questions, but just the shape of it. You know, the defense was good, mm-hmm. um, and he was overexposed. So I think maybe as a starter, I would say it's a C minus season for a starter. He's a better player, I think, and there's better ways to use him over the course of a season. But when you have like he's a two and above replacement player, but when you need 155 games to get to you know barely uh, cross two wins above replacement, you need a big defensive boost to get there you really don't feel the difference between an average and a below average player, you know, game to game. You, you can't really tell the difference between a you know, one, 1. 1.5 wins by replacement player and a guy who barely makes it two, you know, over that sample of games. And that has limited use as a starter or for a guy who played as much as him. So, I mean, the defense was great. He was the Sox best individual defender. So that's why I don't want to give him a D, but I think C minus is probably as high as I can go. How about Tim Anderson over at shortstop? What grade would you give him? I would give him an A minus with just the errors being. You can't expect anything more than what he did uh, offensively. <laughs> I think it uh, surpassed anybody's expectations. So you really, you know, that's in like A to A plus offensively. The defense was a disappointment. Just all the errors, mistakes. Uh, the metrics dinged him, and for good reason. Just when you commit that many errors in that few games, it's it, you know, it's noticeable. And it wasn't all on plays that are on the edges of his range. He did. Uh, uh, fumble away a lot of makeable plays. So I would, you know, if you're looking for a way to easily improve, like there's a lot of room for him to improve defensively uh, and and not be expecting too much of him that, or too much from him there. So I would say A minus overall. And then Yoan Makata, is that another A? Yep, that's an A. That's a solid A. Can't expect for more from him uh, defensively. And I think offensively, you know, uh, you might want to see more walks or think that more walks are possible, but when he hits 315, uh, kind of, uh, you know, it gets the on-base percentage to where I might have thought it was going to be all along, and whether it's hits or walks at this stage in his career, both are fine. And then James McCann behind home play. What grade would you give him? I would give him a B. Uh, I, I think he has some trends that I don't care for. The second-half performance, that I think, points to a catcher who... You don't want to risk overexposing in 2020, but for the job he did behind the plate working with some starters, his throwing arm, I think, helped uh, Lucas Giolito more than his framing just because you know, nobody ran on Giolito this year, and uh, they really slowed down the running game in total and, and helped simplify it for some guys. The bat uh, came up with some pretty big moments and, and you know, re- at least bounced back a little bit in the second half, uh, avoided a com- complete collapse, so... Uh, I would say overall, especially factoring in how they got him and what they signed him for, uh, B seems okay. All right, let's go to the bench. Wellington Castillo, what grade would you give him for 2019? I would give him a D minus. I think he hit for enough power, especially late in the season with some big hits um, that he uh, you know, avoided F uh, status for me. Um, yeah, get like a Brayu if you're counting on some, uh, you know, if you're counting too much on runners in scoring position and big situational hits, then that's going to be a problem trying to project that into future success. But uh, he did have some sizable hits and the power was more consistent at the end of the year. And I was kind of joking that he might project better to me than uh, James McCann in 2020. And I did that just to get that thought out of my head and and throw it into the greater White Sox Twitter and see how people reacted to it and see if anybody agreed with me. Most people uh, reacted with vomit emojis. So I think uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm hoping that's the case, but it was just, it was something that, that rattled my head a little bit as, as two catchers might be closer than we think uh, at the same point next year, but 
yeah, it was uh, either the defense was bad, the uh, um, you know the results with pitchers was bad, the offense was uh, non-existent for most of the season. So he was he was flirting with F territory for a very long time. What grade would you give Ryan Goings for his 2019 season? I would give him a uh, overall. I would give him a D plus, but I think shape of the season give him a C just because he did happen to produce when people were hurt. And by the time his bat faded out, uh, he had a really bad end of the season and mostly looked like the replacement level guy that uh, had bounced around between Toronto and Kansas City. By the time he looked like that, there weren't really infield reps for him anyway. He tried to play right field. That didn't work, but that's not his fault that they had no right fielder. So based on uh, his production early when they really had nobody to play the left side of the infield, um, I I think it's a C overall and, and... like the other guys, just uh, would not count on him posting a C ever again. What grade would you give Jose Rendon for his 2019 season? I knew, I know, and I remember that you were trying to get him more playing time. No, I think it's a, it's enough. And, and the White Sox handled it appropriately. He surfaced with Baltimore briefly and bounced out of there. So I think that speaks to it too. But there were, there was a bit of plate discipline. Um, you know, he was, was drawing walks better than some other guys. And I thought... Uh, that might be worth a week or two just to see if there's anything there. But yeah, the production really didn't uh, back it up at all. And, and it was worth moving on. And so far, he has not uh, shown that the White Sox are missing anything. And then finally, what grade would you give Yonder Alonso for his 2019 season? <laughs> I mentioned this with Greg, but two people gave him a B. We have trolls in the survey. <laughs> trying to think what the B could stand for. Oh, B for bust? Uh, Greg thought he was uh, Yonder Alonso's relatives. Maybe his wife, <laughs> brother-in-law, Manny Machado voted in our poll. Yeah. Didn't give him an A. Gave him a B trying to hide. Well, A would be A would be total. Yeah, the A, A uh, if you give him an A, that just, you have to throw all plausible deniability <laughs> out the window. So, yeah. B seems like they at least put a little bit of thought into it. Oh, man. All right, so we got your grades for the White Sox infielders. And the first P.O. Sox question, I should say the first two P.O. Sox questions. Let's go back to Yomer Sanchez at second base. And Andrew Siegel is asking, who's the starting second baseman on opening day? Yomer Sanchez, Luis Garcia, Danny Mendick, or other? And then VA Shy Sox wanted to follow up on that question. And ask, should the White Sox seek a starting second baseman outside the system for 2020? Or do they rely on an internal solution like Yomer Sanchez, Luis Garcia, or Danny Mendick until Nick Magical is ready? So, Jim, with the 2019 season over, you giving Yomer Sanchez a C- slash D+, for his efforts in 2019, what is the best direction for the White Sox to go at second base heading into 2020? I wouldn't mind seeing them overhaul that kind of area of the roster, the bench, the extra outfielders, the extra infielders, just, um, you know, based on some of the crunches that they have uh, when it comes to like, you know, Yomer Sanchez arbitration figure seems untenable for how much he's producing and how, what role he's expected to take for the bulk of the 2020 season, you know, paying him five to $6 million seems not smart, uh, not like a great use of resources if resources are going to be a thing. Um, then same thing with Larry Garcia. He kind of falls into that same uh, pitfall that I mentioned with Yolmer. Just, you know, he had a decent season. I'm looking up his exact uh, 
wins above replacement hole here just to better understand it. So Leary finished at 1.6 over 140 games, 618 plate appearances. And for that, that's a below average player. And he's, you know, he's not below average for, say, he's useful in some cases. You know, he served a purpose when he played center fielder for most of the time. And then Tim Anderson got hurt and he played shortstop. And that was kind of cool to see him step in over there and produce a little bit. But overall, he's not really a standout in any one position. He doesn't hit, you know, he's got a very unique brand of production uh, that can uh, backfire on him sometimes. So when you when you post uh, a 1.6 wins of replacement, at least according to baseball reference, over the course of 618 plate appearances, that's really not distinguishable from you know somebody who's barely above replacement level, like say a Danny Mendick type. Um, you know if you can project him for that over the course of that many plate appearances, and you know, I, I can see why Garcia is, is useful for a manager, and I can see why you know Yomer is worth having around because his glove is great. You know watching uh, Jerks and Profar try to turn two during that A's Rays game and just Anytime you see somebody at second who isn't Yolmer Sanchez, you understand like just how good his hands are and how rare they are for a second baseman to do as many cool things as he does on the pivot or uh, with the kind of throwing angles he creates from you know, ranging left, throwing right, and ranging right, throwing left. He's really good at that. And, and so I don't want to downplay it at all, but I think you know when you're looking at just how suboptimal all these guys are for getting a, a lot of playing time and how their salaries you know might be a problem or at least you know, get in the way of more meaningful additions elsewhere. I wouldn't mind seeing them part ways and just try to figure out guys with more upside for those positions, like the fourth outfielder slash utility man slash you know, utility infielder. Uh, I guess utility man would be more Swiss army knife. And, and maybe that's not even necessary going to 26 men. Maybe somebody like Leary is not going to be as useful when you have a 26 man roster and don't need one guy to do so many things. So uh, I wouldn't mind if they just, uh, weren't attached to either of those guys. I think Mendick's worth keeping around because he's making the league minimum and showed some things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wouldn't mind seeing him be in the mix, maybe not for starter, but for hovering around a bench job. But for those other two spots, I wouldn't mind seeing them explore other options that are high. Yeah. I haven't looked into it yet for uh, off season plans. So I may end up coming back to them if I, you know, the grass isn't greener, but uh, it seems like there are better ways to use those spots and, dollars for guys who might have more upside and and might have a better shot of starting even if madrigal is going to be taking most of those second base spots and if Luis robert is going to be getting most of the reps in center field and that's what i mentioned when we talked about this with greg as far as is yomer sanchez coming back in 2020 i i'm doubtful that he's going to be tendered a contract jim it, it, we could have a weird situation where yomer sanchez wins the gold glove for second baseman in the american league in november and then a couple of weeks later, he's non-tendered. Yeah, it sounds about right. The White Sox, uh, you know, the, the gains that the White Sox have, the guys who draw walks can't do anything else. The guys who play defense don't do anything else. Just it's it's been like right. that for a while. And, I mean, in arbitration, this is what, his third year in arbitration? So he could get, you know, more than $5 million, maybe $6 million. Nick Madrigal is going to be one-tenth of the cost. And I know the White Sox have the lowest committed payroll heading to the offseason. But what's a better use of that money being spent, right? If you, I believe Nick Madrigal offensively can produce better than what Yomer Sanchez did in 2019. And I think he can provide similar defense at one-tenth the cost. I'd rather the White Sox take the $5.5 million dollars and spend it elsewhere 
while giving someone that, you know, you drafted fourth overall. Uh, so you must think that he's going to be your long-term second baseman to give Nick Magical that job on opening day. I don't think that's realistic. I think he's going to start the year in AAA for XYZ reason. Uh, but that's the direction I would like the White Sox to take is just have Nick Magical be the opening day starting uh, second baseman for the White Sox and then focus on better resources. As you mentioned, Jim, that, that was really interesting and maybe something that we could all think about when we're doing our offseason plans is because the rosters expanded 26 guys to finding a very effective, maybe even a better power bat to be a fourth outfielder or maybe a utility infielder. Yeah, I'd just like to see more impact out of that, uh, out of those spots. I think the, the White Sox have spent the last couple of years exploring everything that Yolmer and Larry can do, and you know, especially in this juice ball era with with uh, Sanchez only hitting two homers and slugging three twenty one. Should the ball return to normal or or what it used to be? Oh God, where do you go from there? You know, and maybe all things aren't equal, and maybe you know he's just somebody who will slug higher with a lesser ball just because the you know that's the way luck works or health works or swing mechanics works just lines up but just the if you know if he were like a juiced ball mirage then you could say like or if he had any kind of boost from that then he could feel okay but when you have that kind of just uh you know impact contact dry up on him in this particular season uh it's just hard to feel good about uh, just how much he can provide. You know, if he needs uh, 150 or 150 games and 555 plate appearances to get to two wins of a replacement, you're not going to feel what he provides over the course of 70 or 80 games. It's just not going to really be detectable versus somebody like Danny Mendick, assuming that, you know, Danny Mendick does not turn into Jose Rondon, which he very well could. So, you know, that's the value of Sanchez. You know what he's going to provide, but uh, I wouldn't mind seeing the White Sox explore other options, uh, you know, try to see if anybody is out of options across the league. You know, that, that kind of mm-hmm. situation where um, they might have that roster spot to use that other teams don't. And, you know, you, you raise really good points with the Omer Sanchez, and those same points could also provide to Nick Magical. If the baseball changes back and it's not a juice ball, what kind of offensive impact does Nick Magical have? Because he's still very limited power-wise. Is he still trying to learn and figure out which pitches that he can drive. And I am a little bit worried as far as his long-term future on does the Nick magical we saw in Charlotte have staying power in the major leagues. If teams are not going to hit more than 300 home runs a season, can the white Sox afford to have one of their starters have difficulty hitting five home runs in a season when they may have to put up 250 plus home runs just to keep up with the rest of the league, like where do you make up the, that home run loss at that position? Those are some of the questions that have been swirling in my head. So I'm not going to say that yeah, Nick magical. I mean, I think the expectation for the white Sox gym is that he is a long-term starter, but at least for 2020, I like him to start there. So the white Sox have a better understanding if he is going to be a core piece at that position or if we have to even start contemplating somebody else at second base because the White Sox have to keep up in the power race. I think with Yolmer, the, the difference there with Madrigal and, and Yolmer, when you look at, you know, Madrigal should be single-digit home run total and will, you know, maybe it, it hits. Uh, I'm expecting I would put his average at like 280. I think he's somebody can hit 280 at the majors, just a matter of whether he slugs 
310 <laughs> or if he slugs right. something like 350 and whether it's on base percentage is uh, 310 versus 340 you know the, i think the batting average is going to be respectable just a matter of the impact but i think when you look at yolmer in his season that's two homers against 117 strikeouts yeah. so he's he's adding to that contact issue without giving him any kind of benefit of power whereas at least madrigal comes in he'll uh even if he doesn't help them in the power department at least help them in the contact uh department the walks to strikeout ratio he should help in that regard even if the walks are a bit slow to arrive defense should be pretty close to yomer i think i'm I'm impressed with how quickly he makes plays happen i think he's used to making plays happen quickly because he doesn't have the strongest arm and uh stolen bases he you know yomer only stole five and his uh success rate throughout his career has been pretty abysmal <laughs> at the major league level so you know uh magical should provide more base running value too so there should be enough wins on the margins uh, to where there should be a detectable difference, I think, by the end of 2020 or maybe in the first half of 2021. All right, so let's move away from second base. And VA Shy Sox and Andrew Siegel, thank you guys so much for your questions. Our next question comes from Michael. So let's look at third base with a thought of second base. And Michael's asking, with bragging from other media sources of how Yohan Mikata had such a better year than Manny Machado. Do you guys think that Mikata's breakout would have still happened this season if he was at second base? I think his offensive breakout would have. Um, when Mikata talked about his successes and uh, his growth from year to year, he really didn't give any credence to the idea that uh, defense at uh, third base or the focus required at uh, you know, third base uh, the faster reaction times, I think Rick Renteria brought that up as, you know, if he's more locked in the game defensively at third base, uh, he should be more locked at the plate. Mankata didn't really echo that at all. He seemed to think it was more all experience, learning from, you know, being too passive, um, closing up some holes in the strike zone. The offense or offseason work he did with Todd Steverson in the hitting camp. And uh, based on some of the reviews from the hitting camp, I think that might be worth uh, maintaining for the new White Sox hitting coach. But so there's that. But um, but yeah, it just didn't seem like the defensive issue really, yeah, he wasn't going to give that any kind of weight. And, and by and large, I wouldn't either. I think, uh, by the end of the 29 or 2018 season, there was some growth, uh, when it came to contact and, and he hit 300, I think in his last month. So there was some better bat to ball results, uh, and the work would have gone into his, uh, off season regardless. Uh, I think there was an impact in terms of his overall like value, like his, his wins above replacement when you factor in the defensive component of that. He is a superior third baseman to second baseman. I don't think he might have improved a little bit in terms of uh, yeah, fewer errors at second base, but his his strength really in defense is first step quickness and arm strength. It really isn't the dexterity-related plays I talked about with Yolmer Sanchez, the, the, the quick hands, the ability to make throws and different angles and contort your body quickly to make things happen. He was okay on the pivot, but when it came to the kind of finer, uh, I guess, finer motor skills required at second base, he didn't have that the way uh, Yolmer does at second. And it would have been a pretty low ceiling, I think, at second base. He would have been a bat first second baseman, and uh, you just hope that he doesn't make, he doesn't, he doesn't fumble away too many of the plays that, you know, maybe are in like the 90% uh, success rate uh, category. So that I think overall the breakouts, the big picture breakout, like the five to six wins above replacement breakout, that might not have happened at second base versus third. But offensively, I think that was already in the works by the end of last season. 
and he wouldn't have worked any any less over the winter uh even if he stayed at the same position michael thank you so much for your question our next question our last question in po socks comes from waldo wolf again so waldo had that question earlier in the show about what kind of questions we would ask during the interview with a prospective white Sox hitting coach and now Waldo's asking, what do you guys think our offense needs to compete in 2020 and beyond? Oh, really walks and power, which is pretty uh, general and, and maybe oversimplified. But you wrote about this with the White Sox having a big home run deficit. And uh, in the Todd Steverson post I wrote, I kind of laid out just the issues the White Sox had with their walk rates over the Todd Steverson era. And that's really been the weak leak. Even when you have these kind of breakout seasons like Moncada and Anderson and Avi had with these with these insane batting averages on balls in play and Abreu having his insane season with uh, runners in scoring position, uh, ultimately it still results in a very below average offense and and it's just all the um, you know all the players who aren't those guys not really keeping the line moving, not putting you know not either uh, having situations where their hits mean anything or not uh, getting on base for other people's hits to mean anything. And so it comes down to, you know, walks are, I know, a sticky subject with some people or, um, you know, you get to cases like Yonder Alonzo or Adam Dunn or, you know, the, all the TH failures where uh, the White Sox are trying to get walks out of some spot, but it ends up being somebody who can either strikes out way too much or uh, his hit tool isn't taken seriously. And all of a sudden the walks dry up and he can't uh, keep pitchers honest, like with uh, Alonzo this year or Zach Collins uh, early on. Uh, where their walks just uh, don't uh, scare pitchers. And uh, yeah, that's going to be the issue. <laughs> and uh, part of it, I think, is it you know, might be solved in the minors. I think Madrigal is not going to be somebody who walks a ton, but uh, you know, might be able to foul enough pitches off on the edge of the strike zone to work longer at bats. And, and I think his batting average will be batting at his combination of batting average and not uh, creating all these empty outs with strikeouts should help keep the line moving and add to that a little bit. Uh, where, where Yomer just had a lot of dead ends with his uh, offensive approach. So there is that. But, uh, you know, that's, that's why I'm a big fan of Yasmani Grandal. Uh, when, I, when I try to think of, you know, off-season targets, even though he's a catcher and James McCann had an all-star season there, you know, when you look at just his ability to receive and hit for power from the left side and just draw walks and scare, uh, yeah, scare pitchers and, uh, you know, hit in the middle of the lineup and, you know, work as a DH when he's not catching. You know, if you have that kind of flexibility with Zach Collins, maybe as a third catcher, a lot of things you can do with him and uh, a lot of ways that aren't just a guy who walks, you know, he's not known as just a walker. He does other things as well. And I think that that's kind of the key as the White Sox try to solve this issue is just not having guys who draw walks and do nothing else. Because as we've seen uh, with old guys and young guys, that that can really be exposed and, and evaporate pretty quickly. The Colorado Rockies ranked 15th in Major League Baseball, hitting 224 home runs in the 2019 season, Jim. If the baseball doesn't change, the White Sox, who had 182 home runs, I feel, need to be at least like league median, like around league average. So they have to be... in be ranked 15th next year in home runs the white Sox have to find 42 more home runs from their their lineup their roster going to next season so yes money grandel would go a long way in helping that right he could be a 25 home run guy 
You think Aloy Jimenez is going to be 40-plus home runs? Great, that helps. If you think Yuan Mikata, if he's healthy, he could be 30-plus home runs. That helps. But the White Sox, I think, need to find 40 to 50 more home runs in their lineup in order to be able to be confident that they have a strong enough lineup to compete next year for the postseason, Jim. That's to really make it simple. Yeah, yeah. Right field and DH. Yeah, right field and DH are basically going to be the biggest uh, battlegrounds for Rick Hahn and our offseason plan project just because, you know, Luis Roberts should be able to step in center field, and I think there will be growing pains there. And any White Sox plan that involves him being an above-average offensive center fielder, I think are a mistake when it comes to contending. Then I think you want to put him towards the either the bottom of the order or maybe strategically slot him up higher when you think he has a favorable matchup. But I would count on his uh, aggressiveness being exploited the way we saw Tim Anderson's being exploited and uh, as we've seen with other guys, just uh, aren't able to replicate that success immediately. Um, but when it comes to right field and DH, just needing more professional impact plate appearances and performances out of those two spots uh, to take the pressure off uh, center field and second base. If you have, if you're really um, cordoning off those spots for Robert Madrigal really won't, don't want them having to hit, you know, 25 homers for Robert and two in order for him to, ha- well, I mean, uh, I mean like in order to have like an above average power outcome for him, like eight to 10, you know, like in Robert, you need an above average power outcome from him in his rookie season, like 25. Like that would be uh, really, uh, you don't want to put those guys in position to fail, which is really my biggest thing when it comes to rookies. It's just not making them, you know, not over relying on them, not getting disappointed or or feeling like uh, they're blowing up the team when, you know, they're just getting their first uh, looks at major league pitching. You know, that, that's unfair. So, and, and, and given how much payroll space they have and, how few guys they have for those right field and DH spots that they can really go all out for that and take the stress off the rookies that they're trying to bring up and, 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 you know, ultimately, uh, you know, tread water initially to um, succeed later. Again, with this whole podcast episode to come full circle, the White Sox infielders were the strength of this team in 2019. And I still feel Jim that they're going to have to be, strong again in 2020 if the White Sox want to be serious to make this transition from rebuilder to contender that Tim Anderson and Yohan Makata need to put up similar numbers and if they do bring back Jose Abreu he still needs to be someone that could hit 30 plus homers and drive in more than 100 RBIs on top of the offseason acquisitions they need to make Mm -hmm. I'll agree with that so that will re- that ends as far as our PO Sox. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions this week. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. You can help support the site and show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed our 2019 infielders review of the White Sox season next week on October 14th, our next release of the podcast, we are going to be reviewing the White Sox outfielder. So not as positive, 
as this episode was we talked about the infielders, uh, but we'll look at the White Sox outfielders and for sure looking at the White Sox outfielders will be keeping an eye on the future as some possible names that could join the White Sox outfield in 2020. And of course, our anticipation of a big season from Aloy Jimenez in the rookie year of Luis Robert. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, there are a number of ways that you can subscribe to the show. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.